Welcome to the final bookends episode for 2013. My guest for this episode is Australian writer Hannah Kent. And although this interview took place during a heatwave in September, Hannah's haunting and beautifully written first novel, Burial Rites, is actually the perfect winter read, so it all worked out quite well. In 1829, the last public execution in Iceland took place. A man and a woman were beheaded for a brutal murder committed on a remote farm. And as there were no prisons in Iceland at the time, the condemned woman, Agnes Magnusdottir, is sent to spend her final months on the farm of a local councillor, where she will be kept under the watch of his wife and their two daughters, who are, quite frankly, horrified to have a convicted murderer in their midst. So they avoid contact with Agnes wherever possible and regard her as something of a monster. Only Toti, the young assistant priest appointed to supervise Agnes's spiritual well-being, tries to understand her. And as the months pass, the winter deepens and the hardships of rural life force the household to work side by side. The true story of Agnes's crime begins to unravel, and it is revealed to be far more complex than anyone imagined, or, more to the point, was willing to believe. Set in the exquisite landscape of Iceland, Burial Rites is a beautiful and moving meditation on human nature, truth, survival and freedom, and on the painful gulf that often exists between how we are seen by the outside world and how we see ourselves. Hannah Kent was born in Adelaide in 1985 and found herself in Iceland at age 18 as an exchange student, but not in Reykjavik as she thought, but in a remote fishing village in Iceland's north called Sodokrako. It was so remote, Hannah couldn't even find it in her atlas. Despite struggling at first to find her place in the close-knit community there, Hannah fell in love with Iceland and has since returned many times. But it was on her very first visit as a teenage exchange student that she first heard the story of Agnes Magnus Dottir and was instantly captivated. And so when Hannah began her PhD in creative writing at Flinders University a few years later, there really was no better opportunity to research and explore Agnes's story. The result was her novel, Burial Rites, which won the inaugural Australian Unpublished Manuscript Award in 2011. It was published this year and translated into 20 languages. Burial Rites has now also been shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award. I spoke to Hannah Kent while she was in London for her UK book tour. two stories here mm. um, in Burial Rights. I mean, obviously, there is the story of Ag- Agnes Magnus Dottir, um, whose story Burial Rights is based upon, but there's also your story. Mm. So maybe we could just start with that. Uh, how did a girl from Adelaide <laughs> find herself in Iceland? And not just, you know, Reykjavik. You, you went to a very remote part of Iceland, like yes, the, yes. Um, one of my old English lecturers used to call Tasmania the Antipodes of the Antipodes. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what the Northern Hemisphere equivalent is, but uh, not too far off. Really. So how did you find yourself there? It's it's quite a long story. If you if you'll indulge me, um, basically ten years ago, I was seventeen. I'd finished high school. 
Um, and I, I remember being quite terrified. I didn't really know what to do with myself. I mean, I'm, I'm the sort of person who seemingly feels like they're born knowing what it is they wanted to do. And for me, that's always been writing. You know, I remember being six years old and telling people, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I, t- I remember telling them I wanted to be an author, but something else as well, because my parents are supportive as they have always been about the fact that I've always wanted to write, have always stressed to me that it would be necessary to probably have another job or another another career so that I could, you know, move out um, and, put, <laughs> and put bread on the table. And so, you know, I grew up always saying I wanted to be an author and something else. And I think by the time I finished high school, I'd become very anxious about something else because I knew that that would determine what university course I would go on to do and so forth. And... Um, I don't know if it was the same for other teenagers, but at that age I really thought that the choices I made then would have long-lasting consequences throughout the rest of my life. And I was in a total panic about it all. So I finished I finished high school and instead I applied for a few university courses that I didn't really care anything of. And then I uh, thought, well, maybe I can defer the whole decision that I have to make. And so I applied for a rotary exchange with my local rotary club. They were advertising through, through my high school. And... Um, with the Rotary Exchange, you have to be sort of selected to go. So you go through an interview process and you have to submit a formal application. And I think something that is quite distinct about this program is that you don't actually get to decide the final destination. They choose that for you after they've spoken with you and I guess worked out what sort of person you are. Um, and I remember I'd gone through several rounds of interviews and I was in the last round sitting in front of these three Rotarians. And by this stage, they were asking me questions, you know, like, um, tell us how you anticipate the homesickness and how will you deal with it and so on. Um, have you been away from home before? That sort of thing. And then one of the Rotarians asked me um, how I would respond if I was sent somewhere where it was dark, almost 24 hours a day in winter. And uh, I think I surprised them with how enthusiastic I was <laughs> in my response. I remember, you know, probably saying something like, oh, you know, I've never experienced anything like that before. I'd love to see what it was like. That would be amazing. Yeah, that would be brilliant. <laughs> do it. Um, and I do actually have this very clear memory of them sort of looking at each other. And I swear one of them made a massive cross next to my name. And I walked out of that interview room thinking, they're going to bloody send me to Iceland. And sure enough, though, a few weeks later, I got a letter saying, congratulations, we're going to send you on exchange. You're going to Iceland. And I was the only person to send there. I think everyone else was sort of, you know, shipped off to Belgium and France. Um, but then in this, in this same letter, they said, you know, you'll be hosted by the, the Rotary Club of Söderkroke, which looks like soda cracker. <laughs> I read it written down. That was how I pronounced it when I walked yeah. in, listeners. <laughs> But, um, and you know, I was kind of confounded by this uh, because I had assumed everyone was sent to Reykjavik and the other people I had heard of who had gone on exchange to Iceland, and there weren't a lot of them, they had all gone to the suburbs around Reykjavik. And I remember pulling out an atlas at my parents' house and trying to find Sobekroker and it wasn't even on the atlas. No, and I'm thinking, God. where are they going to send me? Um, but yeah, so that's how, uh, sort of 10 years ago in... You know, a very hot Adelaide summer. I left for a very dark, very cold uh, northern Icelandic winter. And I ended up staying for a year in this very small, closely knit fishing village, really. Of, uh, I think the population was about 2,000. So, um, but it, it felt a lot smaller. I think a lot of people were probably out on boats or, or something. Oh, damn. So you, you weren't daunted at all at the thought of going somewhere so far away and something that was so different to everything that you knew? I probably I probably had moments where I thought, is this a good idea? But I was also incredibly excited to to travel and I wanted to do something different. Um, 
probably because I thought that would make me special, but, you know, with sort of the arrogance of a teenager. But also I think I just, I was just really keen to go see a bit of the world and to have some experiences and, um, and also to not necessarily go straight to university. It wasn't really, I, I actually don't think I thought that much about it until I was on the plane. And I remember being overcome with sadness at the idea of leaving my family for a whole year. Mm. So I really, I think I was just kind of ignorant of the toll it might take on me personally or how difficult it may well be. And it was incredibly difficult. I had a, I had quite a really, I had a very tough time of it the first couple of months of my exchange. So it, when you first arrived, what were your first impressions? Well, it was kind of, I mean, back um, 10 years ago, it was a lot harder to get to Iceland than it is these, these days. You can get quite much more direct flights. Um, so I had this huge sort of two, three day journey to get to Reykjavik. And I arrived at about, you know, 10 to midnight at Keflavik, the, the main airport just outside Reykjavik. And I'd been told to wear this special rotary jacket, which is covered in, you know, it's like a blazer, covered in badges and stand there and someone will come and collect you and look after you. And I got out the flight and collected my bags and I was standing there in my jacket and no one came. And I had an emergency number just in case, you know, there was a problem. And I'd waited about an hour, no one rocked up. So I went to a phone booth and, you know, managed to call this number and I could hear gibberish and I didn't understand it, but I knew clearly that it was saying, this number is disconnected, please try again. And I was thinking, you know, what do I do? It's the middle of the night and I was incredibly jet-lagged. Yeah, I was just about to say, you must have been jet-lagged to the max. I was like a zombie. Um, And then this woman came up to me in Icelander and spoke to me in Icelandic and I obviously didn't have a clue what she was saying, so she repeated herself in English and she said, you need to get on the bus. There was a bus outside the airport window. And I said, oh, no, someone is going to pick me up. And she said, well, they better hurry up because you can't just wait outside in the snow and the airport's about to close. You know, there's no more flights coming till oh, tomorrow morning. God. And I sort of, you know, shoved this bit of paper at her and said, this is the man who's supposed to, you know, I couldn't even pronounce his name. He's supposed to come get me. And um, and she said, you know, did you call the number? I said, yes, it's, I don't understand what the, you know, the automatic voice is saying. So she called the number for me and came back and said, yes, it's, it's a disconnected number. And I said, you know, what do I do? She said, look, you need to get on the bus. You can't, you can't stay here. So she put me on this bus. I didn't even at that, at that time knew that that was the bus that you needed to get on to get into the city. For yeah. all I knew, we were in the city. It was pitch black outside. I couldn't see anything. And, um, and I think she must have managed to look him up in the phone, in the phone book and um, get hold of him. Because by the time I finally arrived at the final bus stop at the major station he was there looking a bit sleepy and said oh sorry I forgot you were arriving he forgot you (laughs) were coming oh for heaven's sake so that was I guess my first experience of Iceland um so actually the first time I saw snow was standing in this this uh, this bus station as a as I got out finally and and saw him there and it just started to snow then um and then you know I I actually ended up going back with him and staying uh, that night or a couple of nights and then they put me on a light aircraft a very very small sort of matchbox plane um, which flew me up to the north to the tiny airport of Sothekroka, which is actually really a paddock. Um, <laughs> and again, I arrived at night, and so I had no idea what this town looked like until I woke up the next morning. My host family came and picked me up and took me back to their house. I knew it was cold, I knew it was dark, and that was about it. And then at about 11 o'clock the following morning, I remember being in the kitchen and looking out the window and seeing this massive mountain by the side of all these quite colourful little houses, um, you know, dusted with snow. Snow is everywhere. And then the sea. I had no idea that I would be by the sea. I didn't know it was a fishing village when I first, you know, heard of it. 
um, you know, this iron grey, sort of very still fjord, which came in and the houses were sort of all around it. And, um, and so that was really my first impression of Iceland, and it was, it was astonishing. I'll never forget that first view that I saw as I looked out the window and finally could actually see the surroundings that I would live amongst for the next 12 months. Mm. It's such a breathtaking place, mm. so different it to is. everywhere else in well, everywhere else I've ever been. I mean, it sounds, I mean, you couldn't get more of a place to contrast with Australia. No. no. Did you find there's hardly any trees? There were no in trees. Iceland. Yeah, there mm. were no trees, and that was one of the first things I noticed because it's funny. You sort of take them for granted, you know, when you're living in Australia or anywhere else, sort of in anywhere else in the world where there are trees. Mm. Um, and what I was immediately struck by was how far you could see. You could always see to the horizon, even if it was sort of interrupted by a mountain range, and how present you were in the landscape because you weren't, you know, you weren't hidden by anything. You felt very vulnerable. And the, mm. from that very sort of early days, I did feel that this was somewhere quite special where the, I guess the interaction between nature and human is so much more, I don't know, immediate and intense than anywhere else I'd ever been. Mm. And the light as well, because there's nothing sort of preventing this sort of long vision um, that you that you're able to have I've never seen skies like I have in Iceland mm. just the the blue light that you get in those first in those it's not really daylight you don't see the sun in the north it doesn't get above the mountain range and mm. um, you just get this strange blue intense blue light that would sort of linger for about four hours and then disappear again mm. so I mean it's it's unlike anywhere else on earth did you feel isolated when you first got there? Oh, I mean, yeah. how was the settling in period for you? It was really difficult. It, um, I didn't really know what to expect. I think I thought, oh, you know, it'll be dark and I'll be cold and I won't understand the language. You can kind of clock all that information without really considering it. But I had, I, and I knew I would be homesick, you know, I was prepared to be homesick. But what I didn't anticipate was just how, I think, particularly because I was in this very small, rural community where everyone really knew everyone, just how conspicuous I would be as an outsider. I have this very clear memory of walking to school. I'd finished in, in Australia, but they send you to high school again in this town where you go. I remember walking to school in the snow and this car by the side of the road and this car pulling up and then as it got close to me, slowed down immediately until it was at the same pace that I was walking at. And I was quite sort of perturbed by this and looked around and sped up and the car sped up and then joined me again. Then I could hear the windows being rolled down and everyone in the car sort of stuck their heads out and I thought they were going to shout something at me. <laughs> they just wanted to have a look because I could hear them say Australia mm. and I could hear them say my name. I had no idea who these people were, but they had obviously heard that there was, they knew that I was the Australian exchange student in town and so they just wanted to have a look at me. You were a local celebrity almost. Well, it was weird. You felt, I, felt very, I felt very conspicuous and I felt very self-conscious, but at the same time there was no interaction. It, that didn't really happen until several sort of months in that I even started speaking to people to the other classmates at my school because I was quite shy as well which probably didn't help things and Icelanders can't they it's not hostile they're not hostile towards strangers but they might take a bit of time before they come up and put themselves out there you know and so it was this really weird mix of being yeah as I said completely conspicuous but also really socially isolated and it just kind of completely messed my brain around I would you know which was already and it just seemed to sort of be compounded by the fact that it was so dark all the time and that you spend a lot of time inside because of the bad weather, plus the fact that I felt alienated again from not understanding the language. It was a very strange place to be in, mm. and I really retreated inwards. I think, actually, I remember, you know, I was really... I was probably depressed, to be honest. I remember, you know, 
sitting down in the shower because I just felt so without energy and so sad I couldn't be bothered standing up. Mm. And probably, you know, looking back now, I'd be like, yeah, I was pretty, pretty low. Yeah. Um, but, you know, of course it got a lot better, but it was probably a period of about three, two months, three months where I really struggled. And it was actually during this time that I... Um, I encountered the story of Agnes Magnus Duffy. Yes, that was going to be my next question. How did you first learn about Agnes and her story? Well, as I said, it was when I was, you know, I didn't really socialise with anyone beyond my host parents. Even actually my host brother with this first family didn't speak to me. For reasons I still, to this day, have no idea why. That must have been welcoming. (laughs) (laughs) It made me feel that I was doing something wrong. But yes, I remember they took me, they drove down south to Reykjavik to visit, I think, their parents. And, you know, we had this little visit. Then we were driving back up the north on the on the major ring road that goes around Iceland. And for the first time, sort of, the skies were clear and there wasn't any fog and I could probably really see the landscape. And I remember I was so struck by its beauty and also just by how unusual it is that I sort of forgot myself and I forgot to be shy. And I started chatting with my host parents, which we hadn't really done a great deal of. And, um, and, you know, they would comment on certain things and the places that we moved through and certain stories, um, you know, point out certain landmarks. And then as we came to the north, not far away from where the town was, we went through this place which I now know to be Vatstalod, which is a valley. It's beautiful. I mean, it's the country around there are these sort of big, vast, empty valleys, um, just like sort of pastoral valleys with rough turf and so on. And then you have these big kind of looming mountains, which were obviously covered in snow at that time. And then, um, but this place, Vatstad, is quite unusual, and it's you notice it when you're driving along, because it seems as though the earth has sort of, I don't know, it suddenly seems to have been gathered, like puckered up into all these little hills that are suddenly everywhere, just in a very sort of small area, hundreds and hundreds of small mounds. And I thought they looked a lot like um, burial mounds that I had seen in a documentary about Vikings. And not really knowing anything of Iceland's history, I asked my host parents if that's what they were. And they said, oh, no, no, it's just the way the land is. And later I discovered that it was actually because of an avalanche. But, um, you know, that happened centuries ago. But they said it's interesting that you, that you mention this place because over there, just as the car was going through, by those three hills is where the last execution occurred in Iceland. And I was, you know, immediately interested because yeah. I think, you know, everyone would be on hearing this kind of story. And I asked them, you know, what happened and when did it happen and who was it? And I don't think they actually told me very much at that time, but I do know that they told me that um, it had been two people who were killed and the last woman, the last person was a woman called Agnes and that she had been beheaded for her role. And again, they weren't, they weren't quite sure about what this role might have been, but her involvement in the very brutal murder of two men as they lay sleeping and also the fire that was lit afterwards intentionally to try to hide their bodies. And I remember immediately being quite struck and by this story, but particularly by the idea that that was a woman, you know, and they told me that it was a long time ago. This is, you know, she was killed in 1830. But for some reason I couldn't quite let it go. And even Throughout the rest of my exchange, which, you know, I'm glad to say improved dramatically, I ended up having a wonderful time and completely falling head over heels with the country and learning the language and making friends and so forth. But I um, even throughout the rest of my exchange, I would continually think about Agnes and I would occasionally ask questions and get a little bit more information. And, and then I returned to Australia and I, I, I changed my university degree while I was in Iceland, mainly because 
with all the darkness and then with all the daylight, the 24-hour daylight in summer, I uh, I was lonely in the first darkness and then I became intensely sort of, I had a lot Social. of insomnia. Oh, insomnia. Yeah, in the summer. Oh. So, and there's only so much, you know, Icelandic television you can watch. So I would, <laughs> I would write. And then it was through, you know, writing during my time that I realised that I may as well give that a shot as my career for as long as I could get away with it. And so I changed my university degree and went back and did a Bachelor of Creative Arts. And then um, by the time I came to do my honours, I uh, had to write a, a, a creative project, you know, like 10,000 words of creative work. And I, by this stage, I was really keen to write about Iceland. And still, I had all these questions about this elusive woman, Agnes, that I'd heard about who had been killed. And um, I decided to write about her. And it was really the, um, the research that I started to do just to write that 10,000 words, which ended up being, I think, probably the second or third chapter in the novel, you know, vastly altered now. It was when I sort of do the research that I was sort of, I guess, realised that I needed to write the whole book, that I needed to do this as part of a PhD. And that was mainly because I, um, I became very frustrated at what I was reading and what was available about, about the murders, but particularly about Agnes and how she had been portrayed in many of these sources. Mm. It seems that there's quite a few discrepancies between the official records of what happened to her mm. and what local history remembers of her it's um yes there are i mean and and sometimes necessarily so i mean the official documents many of which i didn't actually i wasn't actually able to access until probably about two years in of researching um and the local histories you know they're written for different to reach different ends the the official documents were there to be presented back to the danish government to be sort of recorded and have a paper trail basically when you're going to kill someone officially um and then the local histories were very much more indicative of the attitude of the community at that time and also the way in which the story has been mythologized but something that struck me in both in pretty much all the sources that i came across was this idea that even though three people were uh, accused of having you know conspired to kill these two men it was agnes who was the one who was basically unequivocally condemned as the orchestrator of the attack and the one who seemed most monstrous yet at the same time the one who was most absent in terms of these sort of a lot of these documents and a lot of these narratives about the crime you know everyone just seemed to acknowledge that yes this was the one this was the she was the driving force behind it all she was the cold-blooded murderess who wanted to kill these men because some said you know she wanted their money other ones said that she was a woman scorned and so she wanted to get her revenge but it was always this idea of her being sort of a a Lady Macbeth type yeah, figure, you know, plotting and rubbing mm. her hands together. and But there was no information about her early life. And this was what was I was kind of most curious about. I wanted to know how, you know, society perhaps at that time had worked upon her life to put her in this situation, as well as her mm. being, you know, maybe making some very bad decisions. But I, I really didn't agree with the idea that someone could be, you know, unequivocally evil, that it was just the way you were. I think people are capable of doing evil things, but I don't think anyone is naturally, you know, a, a stereotype, basically. No one is that sort of, that monster. No one certainly regards themselves as a monster. And so I started to think about ways in which you might be able to research the story and write a story that, rather than, say, do exactly the same thing but in the opposite way and say, oh, no, she was innocent and a victim of her times and so forth, instead explore some element of ambiguity or certainly her humanity you know and and work out how much of what happened was a consequence of her decisions and her you know her bad behavior but also how did 
the political or cultural or social atmosphere of that times contribute to this situation as well. Mm -hmm. So that's really where, this, this is where my head was at the beginning of the PhD when I started to think of this as a full-length novel. Wow, it's, a, it's incredibly impressive, the, <laughs> the breadth of thinking that went behind all of this, all the different layers to her story, because as you say, um, there is actually so much ambiguity in mm. why people do what they do mm. um, and why people end up in the situations that they do. Yeah, particularly yeah. with women, I think, particularly. Mm. And that was something that struck me when I was reading these things as well. You know, a lot of the men, you know, and the other man who was executed before Agnes, this young boy called Friedrich, people would acknowledge that he was a thug and that he behaved really badly, but he was never called a monster. He was a boy who had been raised badly and behaved badly, but he was still a, you know, a complex human. But the same courtesy wasn't extended to Agnes. And I noticed this in my other sort of research um, that I did as part of my PhD about other women who were con convicted of rather heinous crimes. They're often just kind of categorically condemned and no one really sees it as a behavioural issue. They see it as indicative of some real kind of core of evil or monstrosity. It's almost like history just wants to put women in categories. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would even argue, I don't know if you'll agree with me, I'd even argue that um, people do it with women now, particularly women in politics. I'm referring to the recent um, oh. example Australia has what a shown. Oh, that could be a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, but it's almost like if there's this woman who's a bit different but, you know, uh, Agnes wasn't a mother, mm -hmm. um, she wasn't married, yeah. uh, she wasn't even born out of a marriage. Yeah. She, she was consigned to an incredibly lowly life mm -hmm. by the sounds of it, but she didn't accept that. Yeah. And it was almost like, and so we can get on to talking about the novel itself now, it, it seemed to me that, yes, Agnes was being punished and was executed for a crime, mm. but she was also being punished for daring to try and escape her situation. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've got it in one. And I mean, I, I you know, I didn't necessarily start, you know, with my honesty, just thinking about these things and thinking about these ideas, but certainly it came into it as I did more research into um, other representations of historically, you know, real historical women convicted of murder in contemporary literature and the things that I saw other novelists trying to attempt to do and also the way that they return to older representations of these women. And you're absolutely right. It's something that I've, I sort of saw in common amongst a lot of these cases, you know, including Agnes's, but that these were women that did, could not actually be put into a pigeonhole. They could not be easily sorted into, you know, socially accepted roles. None of them, often many of them weren't mothers or they weren't wives. They were certainly not virgins. You couldn't even call them a victim. You know, what were they? Were they, they? They weren't necessarily passive people who had been duped into crime by older knowing men, because generally in those cases people took pity upon them. You know, they would sympathise with them and try to help them. Like they do with Sigur, your other character. Absolutely, that's a really good example. Mm. You know, people feel sorry for her because she's young and pretty. And, and stupid. And stupid, <laughs> and has obviously been kind of fooled into this situation by the fact that She's been swayed by an older man. And that was accepted because that happened, you know. People mm. could say, yes, the poor girl, let's, let's kind of help her out now. Um, and then, you, then even with Rosa, Rosa is another character in the book who is a, is, a, is a wife and a mother and she had a very famous, well-documented affair with the murdered man, Nathan. But she's kind of held up as this wonderful sort of poet. She's still celebrated in Iceland today and I wonder how much of that is because she was still 
kind of, uh, you know, a wife and the fact that she was a mother. She was still, even the fact that she went off and behaved badly and had an affair, she's still understandable within those sort of confines that were set out with women. Agnes was completely different. She was older. She was certainly knowing. People kind of referred to her as a loose woman, which implied a level of promiscuity, which was a huge no-no. But at the same time, it looked like she went into that actively rather than passively. You know, and she um, she was intelligent, and you couldn't get around her intelligence. And a lot of historical documents pointed out the fact that she was incredibly literate. But she didn't fit in anywhere, and she seemed to be very much aware of the fact that she was in a situation, that a social situation, that she couldn't help herself, and she railed against it. She couldn't just accept it. She wanted. She was ambitious, and I think ambition is very frequently. And you talk about relevance today. <laughs> I really think ambition is punished in women when it's seen in women. It's always seen as a negative. Definitely. Yeah. It's like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. If you cry and are an emotional, then you're a hysterical woman who obviously did it, but let's feel sorry for you. If you, you're impassive and you don't give any emotion away... Well, you're cold and you're, you're, cold you're unfeeling. You did it, exactly. There's no maternal instinct <laughs> no. there, so you must be, you know, you must be mm. guilty. And this was the thinking that I kept on coming across, not only in this case but in others that I was looking at, it seems to me that both back in Agnes's day and, and almost now as well, if you can't put a woman into a category easily, mm-hmm. she's a dangerous woman. Yeah, she's not to be trusted. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And often, you know, if there's something else that she's been doing which is perhaps not socially accepted... I mean, I think a lot of... Um, there's a fantastic book written by a UK writer called Jill Dawson called Fred and Edie, which I think was long for the Orange Prize or something like that. And um, it's about Edith Thompson, who was um, hanged in sort of the 1920s, 1930s here in the UK. And um, I've read a lot of, you know, the interviews Jill's given about, you know, what went into this novel. And what's very clear from, I guess, looking at both the actual non-fiction accounts of this crime and execution, but also Jill's, you know, also of Fred and Edie, is that Edith was a woman who was as much, as you say, punished for being an adulteress as she was, and sort of happily so, um, as, as she was for her role in the murder of her husband, which was kind of the official reason. And you see this everywhere. I mean, Agnes's official kind of... The official reason she was killed was because of her role in the stabbing murder of two men. But you look at what people are talking about her and what they're actually condemning her for, and it's for not fitting in. It's for wanting more than you have. It's for wanting to have love affairs or being promiscuous, or it's for being intelligent you know, in a time where you didn't need to be or you were not expected to be or people didn't want you to be. Mm. And you see that again today. You see that everywhere. Mm. When the novel opens, Agnes is only a few months away from being executed. Mm. And what's really interesting about the narrative is that you cross between Agnes's point of view and the point of view of a young priest Mm. who she has specifically requested to sort of be her spiritual companion, Mm. as it were, over her last few months. But what's really interesting is that, and we mentioned this, you you touched on this a little earlier, um, at at the time of this crime and the execution, Iceland was under the control of Denmark. Mm. So basically any big crimes like this would normally be tried and executions would all happen in in Copenhagen. But this was quite an unusual case they were trying to cut costs or mm-hmm. or make an example possibly. Mm-hmm. So Agnes ends up getting effectively billeted with a local family. Yeah. Um, an yeah. exchange student, if you will. <laughs> not based on my own experience, <laughs> not, thank not, goodness. But. Not quite the rotary <laughs> exchange. 
But Agnes does end up living with the family of a local councillor. Yes. Who are all incredibly hostile at yeah. the idea of having a murderess in, in the near vicinity. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you capture... You capture this so well. I mean, her the, the bleakness of her situation and just the, the, the hostility and the lack of empathy that these people have for her. Mm. Um, you, you capture it brilliantly right at the beginning and yet... Mm, thank you. ...by the end, everyone's on her side. Mm, or was, nearly everyone. <laughs> nearly everyone. I mean, it's interesting. The idea... It, to me, I always knew that, this, that the novel would take place after the fact of the crime, after the fact of the trial. I was... Actually, the reason for that was because I knew, I obviously knew drawing from history when the date of her execution was, and I knew it was in winter, and I thought it would be, I knew that she had to wait a considerable amount of time before she was executed, and I think that, you know, in itself is something interesting to explore, someone who knows they're going to die and yet has to wait, and what happens in the interim. Um, and also you have the fantastic device of, you know, quite, again, historically accurate, but the fantastic device in a novel of the summer months then going into this Icelandic winter and having the atmosphere and the tension come with that. The, the fact of Agnes being billeted is historically accurate. I mean, Iceland at that time, crime was, crime was very rare. Um, I think there's only, three, what, 350,000 Icelanders even today, so you can imagine how few there were back then. And um, partly because of the small population and also just because I don't think... You didn't necessarily have other things that sometimes contribute to crime, like, you know, ale houses and things and so forth. Well, it even seems the same today when I went there. They mm. were actually quite proud. I had dinner with the guy who's head of marketing for Reykjavik, yeah. and they, he told me how, you know, crime is so low there. It is, so yeah. this must have... I mean, even even for back then, this would have been a huge it was. scandal. It was huge. It was absolutely huge. And previously, you're right, whenever... Whenever these sorts of things happened and whenever there were death sentences or even, you know, when someone was sentenced to imprisonment, they were often shipped off to Denmark because Copenhagen had jails, they had workhouses, they had sort of the things in place where they could carry out these sentences. Um, whereas Iceland didn't. I think around this time there was a jail in Reykjavik, but it wasn't, it wasn't anything like what Copenhagen had and often it was just easier to ship them off. And the other thing is that capital punishment, even back then, was incredibly unpopular amongst the public. And one of the reasons why people were sent abroad to be executed is because no Icelander wanted to be executioner. They just simply couldn't find anyone. And there was something very different and interesting about this case. And the official reason, as you see in the letters and as you see in the accounts, for Agnes Magnus Dottir and Friedrich Sigurdsson to be executed at the, not only in Iceland, but in the same district where the crime occurred, was supposedly for economic reasons. It was going to cost them way too much to ship them over to Copenhagen. But also there was very much an unofficial reason and that was that the district at this particular time had kind of gone to the docks. There was a lot of petty crime. There was a lot of theft, basically, theft of stock. And um, and this was obviously an embarrassment on the on the local authority, on the district magistrate. And by having a local public execution where the people who attended were not there to sort of jeer and throw cabbages like you might see in some sort of <laughs> telemovie, you know, recreation of, say, you know, London in this time, um, they were ordered to be there. Otherwise, they would have been fined. And there's a, a fantastic book, which was a non-fiction book, which was written about this case, called Engimon Danlita. And in Icelandic, that means, or in English, that means no one may look away. And this was the order given by the magistrate to the people who were forced to be there. 
you know, it was very much like, and he, there's, there are letters, and some of them are included in the book, where he writes to local priests and say, these particular parishioners need to be there, and they're because they're local criminals, and he mm. wants to say, this is what we're doing, this is what we're prepared to do. So in many ways, you know, it was an example to the community. But also, you know, the economic reasons was one as well. But yes, yeah, so she goes, and, and it's true, she was sent to this farm called Kornsa, and I, I assume that the reason she was sent there is because the man was a district officer, which was a local authority. Um, and um, and many of the family members, pretty well all that are in the book, some are excluded that were actually there in real life, um, just because there would have been too many characters. But the two daughters who have to you know put up with her and the wife as well, they were they were all there, and this is what happened. And I guess um, as soon as I knew this to sort of be fact, because I always wanted to honour the fact where I could establish it. As soon as I knew this, I thought, well, how, how interesting. Of course, you know, if it was my family, with me and my sister and my parents, and we had to look after a convicted criminal, of course you would be hostile. Mm. Of course you would be concerned for your family member's safety. And of course, knowing that she's going to die, you probably don't want to interact with her too much because you don't want to, I guess, become emotionally involved when you know that's not going to achieve anything. But then people in Iceland at this time lived in tiny turf, Houses, you know, the bath stuffer, the living area of the house where you would sleep together and work together and eat together. I don't think, I was thinking to myself, it's impossible to spend, you know, even two months with someone after that length of time and not be able to appreciate something of the individual about them. I mean, people who you hear about in terms of, you know, or, or fancy to be stereotypes, that all crumbles away quite quickly, I think, once you actually sit down with them or once you spend any length of time with them. As much as you might not interact, you can't help but see people as humans, as an individuals. And with that, you know, it doesn't necessarily come sympathy, but I think comes empathy. And that's what I wanted to explore. This book is not about people feeling sorry for Agnes or people sympathising with her plight because she has put herself there. And if she was, even in modern times, if she was accused of this crime, she would probably still be convicted. But it's about understanding where she's coming from and appreciating that she has had things to deal with herself and that it's not just her which has kind of contributed to her being in this sorrowful situation. I, I think you, you get across uh, very well the fact that there's always another side to a story, that, that it's not always black mm. and white. And what's really interesting is that, yes, it is based on real, real events, but I really appreciate how... A story from history can really captivate you, but there's just not enough detail mm. to write something non-fiction about mm. it. And you want to use your imagination to fill in the gaps that history has left. Yeah, absolutely. Every It's very difficult to draw a clear line between what is fact and what is fiction in this novel. But name any particular aspect on it, or even any quality that comes from a particular character, and I will be able to tether it back to something that I read in my research, whether that's just a a general sort of thing that was happening in Iceland at the time, so not perhaps specific to any situational character, or whether it's something that I read in the census about this particular individual, or something that was mentioned several times in local histories or in memoirs or journals. Um, and that was very important that I'd be able to do that. Okay, well I'll take up that challenge. Go on. Um, her foster mother. Yes. Who dies in childbirth. Yes. That was a real Where woman. did that come from? Where did that come from? Um, that's an interesting one that you say. When I went over to Iceland, I was able to go to the National Archives and I spent quite a few weeks tracing and finding Agnes first. Because at this stage, I, had, I knew where she died. I had no idea where she was born or where she lived or if she moved around the country. And I was able to find all that information out. 
and sort of track her through parish records from farm to farm over the years. And I was able to find her birth record um, where you know she was listed as illegitimate and I knew then the name of her mother and so on. I could see that by tracking her mother through the parishes, I could see that she went on to have more illegitimate children with different fathers. And even though this was not sort of the be-all and end-all for a woman back in Iceland at this time, it was a finable offence. You would be fined for having illegitimate children. And if you don't have a kinship network, which that would obviously, you know, be a challenge to have when you've got kids from a whole bunch of different, often married farmers, um, that would create certain disadvantages. And I saw that play out in the, in the early data that I saw and gathered about Agnes, to the point where she's about six years old. And then there was a census entry where it was clear that her mother had left and she was by herself. And then there was nothing. And then I was going through microfilm after microfilm after microfilm for the next 10 years until she was 16, and I could not place her. But I knew by the time that she was 16, she was at a different farm in the same district working as a servant. And so what I had to do is work out, one, was she a pauper immediately at the age of six, or would she have been fostered out? And to work out whether or not, you know, which would have been the most likely situation, I read a lot of memoirs and accounts of other foster children and other pauper children in Iceland at that time and also later on. And many of them said that initially, what seemed to happen was initially a child would be fostered with a family. The idea of fostering other people's children is quite common in Iceland. It extends back to the sagas. And, um, and I could understand that, especially because she's quite, quite young. Um, and so it is fictionalised. I know that she was at Cornsall at this particular time. And so for me, it was very much an idea of would she, what would, her have, what would her relationship have been like with the family? Why was she not with them at the age of 16? Well, often people would still be, say, acting as servants, but they might be with the, the same family that they were working for earlier or were fostered out to. But she had clearly moved on. And there were references to her being working at other farms even earlier than that. And so I knew something had happened to disrupt that foster family or her position within this family. And so it's entirely speculation, but it's certainly linked to, to some academic articles that I was reading about kinship networks, as well as more personal accounts that were written from the perspective of other people who had been pauper children in Iceland. And, um, the, and, and the, re- the conclusion I came to was there must have been a death in the family. Why did families sort of move and sort of break up? It was often because people in them died and they couldn't they weren't enough hands or you know to sort of continue that particular way of life or you know I knew there was very bad weather for instance during those years where I couldn't find any information on her and I know that there was a lot of starvation and that also statistically a lot of women died in childbirth and so that was really where that episode came from Um, but that was actually one of the earliest scenes I ever wrote um, for the book before I had done a great deal of research and so it was a matter of going back and making sure that I could rework that scene and that it would still be historically likely. So that's it. Um, but that's probably, actually, you probably hit upon one of the most fictionalised episodes in the book. <laughs> I shouldn't have told you that. Wow, that's... that's. But still, that's where it comes impre- from. That's <laughs> most impressive. Wow. There could have been so many other things. I could be this particular census, but no, you, know, you pick, the, pick the one where I probably had a most imaginative license but yes the years between 6 and 16 of Agnes's life I it was so frustrating I remember sitting in the archives getting like winding through this microfilm coming to the exact page I needed and there's just a massive sign over it saying pages what is it not pages destroyed or pages illegible or something and you just like oh you know the information is there but it's gone it's and you gone. just can't access it yeah, yeah. I know. so you've just got to 
make it up. <laughs> you just got to, you know, read more generally and pick the, you know, have practice some informed speculation. Mm. Mm. So it was the work of a historian as well as a writer in many respects. Yeah, I don't think I would have actually written this book had I known how much work it would have been. <laughs> but I was so naive, much like when I went to Iceland, I don't think I really thought it through. Um, and then by the time I sort of realised how difficult the research would be and how much of it I would need to do, I was already, you know, committed to the project. I had supervisors and a scholarship and I'd promised the university that I was going to write this book, so I couldn't really... <laughs> you couldn't back out I now. couldn't, no, no. no. That, that leads on very nicely to where I wanted to go next. So what was the writing process of burial rites like? I really loved this image that I read where you turned your walk-in wardrobe into your <laughs> office. It's true. I loved true. that. Yeah, that was funny. I, um, As I said, I, I spent about two years researching this book and then by the time it was sort of the third year of my PhD, I knew I really... I mean, you could... It was crunch time. It was crunch time. I had supervisors, you know, I had given them some early writing um, and because I had been writing while I'd been waiting for information or translating, but it was much more sort of just pure fiction. It was just my imagination, and I'd shown these to my supervisors to basically, you know, appease them. Um, but I knew <laughs> that I had to actually start from the beginning. I'd returned back to Australia probably in around October after that final sort of six-week stretch of archival research. I knew I knew my stuff by this stage. I knew I had the information I needed about Agnes to write this book. And yes, I was in the, I was in you know the third year of my of my you know research degree, so I thought I really need to get a move on. So I actually made it my New Year's resolution um, in two thousand and eleven to write the book, and then probably I think on the fifth of January or something, I decided that I would um, sit down every day, start from the beginning. I'd written about fifty thousand of mainly very very poor writing. I would incorporate that if I could, but otherwise I might just have to discard it. But I would start from the beginning and try to write a thousand words a day. And I, I picked the 1,000 words a day methodology from um, Sarah Waters. Oh, wonderful. Who's, yeah, who's brilliant. And um, I'd always really enjoyed... She's very generous, I think. A lot of writers don't necessarily talk about their process, but she's always been very open about it. And I'd had the good fortune to interview her a couple of times with the other things that I was doing. So that's what I did until about May. And so I wrote the, I wrote the first draft, and then I put it in a drawer, and I didn't look at it again until October. Wow. 2011. So... What did it feel like to finish it? When did you know it was finished? Um, I knew it was finished, this is the first draft, in, in May. Because I was writing it more or less in a fairly linear fashion, um, I came to the end. I wrote sort of the big climactic scenes towards the end, and then it was over. And I, it was just this sense of there's nothing else, there's no, no other events, there's no other characters that necessarily need to be explored. It's, it's done. And I, I remember thinking... I think I think I finished it. I think this is what it feels like to be finished. And then, um, you know, I'd always imagined that, having never written a book before, tried tried to several times, but probably never got further in than two thousand words. I'd always imagined that it would be, you know, this huge feeling of release and relief, and that you would immediately run out and get drunk and celebrate. And uh, <laughs> and it was completely different. As soon as I realised that I had finished, I quite literally put my head down on my desk in front of my keyboard and I burst into tears and I was kind of inconsolable. I ended up calling my partner and, you know, the voice on the other end immediately said, who's died, you know, because I was just so <laughs> upset I couldn't talk. And I spent the rest of the day, um, I think I replied Agnes or something like that, and I spent the rest of the day 
curled up on my bed in the fetal position, just just crying. And I was kind of scared as well. I think one of the reasons why I was so upset is I was scared by my own reaction. Mm. And it wasn't until a few days later that I realised, you know, how, also how familiar the feeling was. And it was grief. It was just it was just mm. pure grief. And that was one of the reasons why I felt I couldn't immediately go back and start editing it. I kind of just had to leave it. It felt kind of painful, which was quite odd. I never would have anticipated reacting that way. And to this day, I still don't quite understand it, but it was just... Yeah, it was just, yeah, stuck. Well, you'd spent a long time with Agnes. Yeah. You'd got to know her so well. But I think it was also having finished a book, you know, having, at that stage it was way too long, it was probably like 110,000 words or something. But yeah, the idea that you, I don't know, I'm not sure what it was. Relief, possibly. Yeah, but relief in the form of, you know, a kind of catastrophic sadness. Which is ridiculous, because there's nothing really to be sad about. You know, I live a very privileged life, but I was crying like someone had died, like I'd just gone through some sort of horrible trauma. And I, to this day, I still have no idea why I reacted like that. And the editing and rewriting process is always very, yeah. a very different stage for a writer. I think Margaret Atwood said um, it, it, it's like you already know how the rabbits got into the hat. Yeah, yeah. So you can't... <laughs> it's hard to get you, objective. You can't be objective. No, you can't. It's You're really a, hard. I love that phrase, yeah. You, you see how the rabbits are smuggled into the hat. <laughs> and it's true. I never I never thought this book would be published. I mean, I wrote it for to hopefully get a PhD qualification. Um, and I never... You know, even then, I never really thought it would be good enough. And that, I know that sounds kind of really trite to say that now, especially since it's been published, but it's the truth. I really just could not judge it. Um, I knew some lines in it, I knew some scenes in it were really good, but I had no idea whether the thing would work as a cohesive whole. Anyway, so I left, I left the book basically after writing it and finishing it in May, and I didn't return to it until October when a friend of mine, actually one of my supervisors, um, convinced me to enter the Writing Australia Unpublished Manuscript Award which was this new award, which I really, I was devastated to hear, has just been cancelled. It's oh, just no. been scrapped. I know, after two years, which seems to me ridiculous. But anyway, these are the times we live in. Um, I suppose so. I know. So anyway, and then, um, and so by the time I sort of, you know, realised that I wanted to enter this award, I had no time left. I was supposed to be doing all this other freelance work, for, you know, free books and $20. And so I managed to, you know, the editor very kindly let me have a, a you know, extended deadline. And so I spent probably about four days, I think it was. I was looking through my emails to discover how long it was. And I think it was about four days I spent madly kind of slashing and burning. And yeah, I cut about 20,000 words out over that course of just a few days. And then I entered it in the award with probably about 15 minutes to go. <laughs> and I ended up winning. And from that point on, that was that was fantastic. I mean, I got a, um, a mentorship with Geraldine Brooks, who approached the book very much like a, a reader which was great for me at that stage and did look at it as a whole rather I was bogged down with things at sentence level and you know we did we didn't talk about it a great deal we sort of emailed back and forth a few times about it um, but one of her great suggestions that really influenced later rewrites particularly or just edits a lot of tweaking was this idea that I needed to let a little more light in at the end mm -hmm. which I thought she just put beautifully because it wasn't directive she wasn't telling me to do one thing or another she was just saying think about this and do with it what you will. So no, she was really generous. And then, of course, um, it was picked up and then I had the, an editorial process um, with my publishers as well, which was, um, which was really fantastic, actually. They were brilliant. Yes, I understand you learned that the first recorded use of the word fart was in 1250, <laughs> thanks to yes. your UK editor. Yeah, yeah, she was brilliant. Because um, a lot of people 
thought that some of the language you'd used was a bit modern, but it turned out no. Yeah, yeah, there was um, one of the the copy uh, one of the copy editors um, sort of just flagged it. Well, she wasn't like you need to change it. She was just like, is this you know is this working? Um, and I was sort of you know I considered. It. I thought well, maybe it could take could be taken out. But a lot of those words were used when people were speaking. You know, it was in the dialogue or it was in Agnes's voice, and I kind of wanted to retain that grit. And um, the kind of the, the dispute was resolved. I was just kind of a bystander. The editors were kind of fighting it out across the country. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, it was resolved when, when my fabulous, um, one of my wonderful UK editors, Sophie Jonathan, wrote back this fantastic brief email just giving the dates of when all the words that were in question were first, you know, recorded as being used. <laughs> and I just, I saved that email. I thought that was bloody brilliant. I mean, this is what... The, you know, a wonderful editor. Mm. <laughs> this is the sort of wonderful trivia they know. It, um, it comes in useful. I was just going to say, you file that away for a pub quiz in case you ever need yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, I know. I should memorise it. Yeah, yeah. Good good fact to know. So you're currently riding the wave of burial rights then. Yes, yes. But you're also the deputy editor of a literary journal. Yes. Called Killing Darlings. I am. What in a fact, fabulous name. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, it, we, we picked it because it was... Um, kind of in line with our ethos when we started uh, with Rebecca Stafford and I and also another team of people. When we started um, this journal, you know, we wanted to publish writing that was, you know, published merely because it was of fantastic quality. We weren't necessarily interested in always getting good names or big names or whether or not people were being published before. We didn't want to be more concerned with that. We wanted to just publish writing quality and to have a really rigorous editorial process. And that's why Killer Darlings really appealed. And I think in the early days we had quite a noir sort of esque aesthetic, um, so it all tied in together. Um, but no, Killer Darlings has has been wonderful. It's been going for some years now, which is kind of incredible when you sort of, you know, we're still kind of in disbelief at the fact that it's going on, not because we don't think it deserves to, but because it's such a hard climate for, you know, gosh, even big publication com- you know, companies, publishers, even you know, let alone tiny small press outfits like we are. But I'm actually no longer deputy editor. Oh, really? No, I've because I'm away so often and um, because we also have such a fantastic group of interns and volunteers coming through the ranks, I'm now publishing director, which sounds rather fancy, oh. with, with Rebecca, who's also taking a step back. And, oh, wow. um, and one of our great editorial assistants... Um, uh, has has stepped up to to be deputy and she's doing a fabulous job, which is really great also to see people you know put in their own creative vision for Killer Darlings after all this time. What was your motivation for starting it apart from you know wanting to showcase really good writing? Was it was it out of frustration that there didn't seem to be anything? Like was it the same people getting published in the yeah, big places all that. the time? That sort yeah, of thing? there was a bit of that. Uh, Rebecca and I. Um, first got the idea we were actually it's a bit, I don't feel like I can really say we met when we were both working she as deputy editor and me as an kind of editorial assistant at another uh, magazine and that was fantastic but we working there we kind of wanted to appeal to a younger demographic than this particular magazine that tended to sort of attract mm-hmm. and we also wanted to um, have great fantastic quality writing about things that people might perceive to be more low culture. So we wanted to be able to publish, and we have done, we've published articles on the you know Palestinian-Israeli conflict in the same issue as someone writing about their accounts of internet dating. Mm-hmm. You know, And we wanted to be able to have that broad interest and to have um, you know, well-researched articles that could didn't necessarily have to be about something that was kind of highbrow. Um, and in doing so, attract a, a, younger, a younger audience and engage with some more sort of 
not pop culture necessarily, but some things that was kind of more, you know. I, we, I was a student at the time. I wasn't really reading anything that I felt was written for my demographic. Mm. Um, and if it was, it tended to be sort of publications that were just publishing emerging writers. And while that's fantastic and they have their place, we really wanted to combine both emerging and established. And also, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe it was conscious and we wanted to raise the profile of emerging writers by putting them alongside fantastic names. And there's no reason why that can't happen, but it doesn't happen often enough. And there's nothing like, I think, you know, being someone who was really trying desperately to get published, there's nothing like seeing your name next to someone you admire. It's a huge Mm. boost of confidence. And it's also, you know, people start taking you seriously. And I think that's one of the hardest things to do when you're young and trying to make it as a writer is just to be taken seriously and to, you know, have a chance at, you know, writing about something that you might be really passionate about but other people might spurn because it seems to kind of, I don't know, of your generation. So that's where that came from. But also, you know, we were just kind of mad for literary magazines and wanted to interview really great writers and see if we could pull this off. And, you know, it's to our ongoing joy that we have managed to do that and that it's still going really well. That's pretty much why I started this podcast well, too. Agree. So you know, I mean, it's I've like, been there. These yeah. are labors of love, and mm. people who don't get it or who are cynical about them, I think, will continue to not understand. Um, but you know, I think there's a certain amount of satisfaction that you can only get when you put your time and your money into something that will give you none of that back. You're not getting any of your time or your money back out of it, but you get a real sense that you might be making a difference, or you yeah. might be enabling other people, or just you know enjoying the process you know mm. just the, the fact that you're making something beautiful or that you can be proud of mm. you know, that's that's I think much more valuable so you've signed a, a two book contract so there will be another novel from Hannah Kent oh yeah soon yeah so soon hopefully um yeah, <laughs> how's <no>. that going <laughs> it's good well I've been I've been doing a lot of uh, publicity and promotional work including a lot of traveling for burial rights this year and that probably won't dry up until end of November so, you know, so from probably, you know, April through to November, it's a big chunk of the year that I haven't really had um, to do a lot of research in because I've been away. But um, there is another book coming and as soon as I get home, I'll be getting stuck into it. Um, my Australian publisher actually seems to be quite superstitious. She doesn't want me talking too much about it. Um, but, you know... Are you allowed to tell us sort of just a little bit? Oh, or? yeah, I can tell you a little bit. I can tell you that it's going to be set in Ireland. Ireland, not Ireland. Iceland. Not Iceland. No, I've just changed one letter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's about a man called Magnus Agnesson. No. Um, and, uh, Dermot McDermott. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's going to be set in Ireland in, in the, actually a similar time in the 1820s uh, in, in the south in, in Kerry. And it's, um, it's, I got the idea for this novel well, I was actually, when I was researching burial rights, I went through this phase of reading a lot of old British newspapers to see if they mentioned the execution at all. And none of them did, but I came across this fantastic sort of trial which involved a great deal of superstitious belief um, that occurred in Kerry at this time. And I was so fascinated by it. And it also kind of chimed into an ongoing interest I have about certain sort of myths and folklores from Ireland that I've had since I was about 12 years old. And, you know, it's always been a country I've been fascinated with. I was in an Irish band for many years. I oh, play Irish instruments, so... Goodness, tin whistle kind yeah, of do, thing. Yeah, yeah, the Boren. I know. Um, so, um, oh, my. So this novel will... It's essentially going to explore, to a much greater degree than Burial Rights did, the, the way in which often disempowered individuals can use superstition to empower themselves, but also to subjugate other people. 
So I'm going to look at this. I guess superstition as agency is kind of a really academic way of looking at it. But um, it will probably... I, I'm not sure to what degree it will take this real historical story as its basis. It depends a lot on what the research reveals and how much I can actually find out. But this is certainly what I'm going to explore in it. Are you a superstitious person? I have my little superstitions. Probably nothing that I get really anxious about. But I like, I like superstition. I like the... I like the way that it also often links to story, and it interests me. Um, but you know, I don't freak out if I break a mirror. <laughs> or walk under a ladder. No, I or do Or see a black cat. Yeah. <laughs> I freak out about ladders. <laughs> do you? Yes. Yeah, so you won't I, walk under one. I, I do try not to, because oh. then I'm convinced something bad will happen. But no, <laughs> I've never broken a mirror either. And I do ask every bookends guest this question. If there was just one piece of advice that would have helped you at the beginning of this whole burial rights um, extravaganza yeah. that, that's occurred, what, what would it be? What would be your advice to someone who'd like to do the same thing? Persist. I think the thing that really helped me... I had a lot of self-doubt when I was writing this book, and to some degree I still have a great deal of it. But even I kept writing even throughout that self-doubt, even when I was literally... And I remember there was one day... But all I was writing down on the page was, you were shit at writing, you were shit, you were shit. <laughs> but I kept doing it until I had at least gotten one sentence that I could use. And I think it's really important to not let any kind of feelings of insecurity or any kind of disbelief in your own ability to paralyse you. Just keep on pushing through. And maybe accept that you will always feel this way, but that it doesn't, you're not objective about your work, so you shouldn't actually listen to yourself. And to me, the other thing that I found to be enormously useful, and without which I wouldn't have been able to write burial rights, is, um, uh, is discipline. It's very important to treat it as a profession and to not take things personally, to be able to accept criticism, but perhaps most of all to, and this maybe ties in with persistence, to write regularly even when you don't want to. Don't wait until you're inspired because you're so rarely truly hmm. inspired. I really think that um, persistence and you know the ability to work very hard on something consistently pays out a lot more than talent at the end of the day so probably that mm. well i can confirm that you're definitely not shit at writing oh thank you i really really enjoyed <laughs> the book hannah can thank you for being my guest on bookends oh thank you so much for having me